we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. It is so good to be back with you in this space. Uh, I, I feel like I haven't been in Lagos for like weeks, um, and that's mostly true. Uh, I've been preaching in other places or at a marriage retreat, and let me tell you, it is a, a breath of fresh air just to be back with you. I love you guys, um, and it is a privilege for me um, to do this thing that we call preaching to uh, teach you about what God is doing and saying through his Word, and so it is good to be back with you. Um, we are walking through James. Um, last week, James um, reminded us that we are in this new reality. Of course, he's speaking to relatively new believers, Jewish believers who are kind of scattered around, and he is reminding them, you know, you're a part of this new reality in your life where God has a will and a way for you. And he reminds him, I don't want you to ever take that for granted. So when you're thinking about life and tomorrow and plans and business ventures, would you remember that? Would you consider the will of God? And most importantly, last week he said something like this, I want you to live very much in the present. For neglecting to do what God has called you to do in the now is sin. And so Paul urges, James urges us to be mindful that God has a will and a way and to live very much in the present. And then he turns to chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And once again, we are receiving some, on the surface, some very hard words from James. Um, so let's stand together and we'll read these with one another. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Let's pray. Father, these are your words to us. Help us to listen and to learn and to obey. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Amen. So once again, man, gosh, a really hard text. Weep and groan, flesh eaten like fire. Judgment 
is coming. These are words, these are hard words, and we know, in fact, most scholars agree that these words were likely not written to believers within the church, but to the unjust rich of the world. This isn't the first time God has written this way. Um, We know in the prophets there are places in Isaiah or Jeremiah where God has a particular word, not for his own people, but for another people, like the Babylonians or, or the Egyptians, where he brings words of significant judgment, right? Uh, we even heard Jesus do something like this when he came, was looking over Jerusalem. He said, woe to you, Jerusalem, right? And he spoke words of judgment. And so, um, although the church isn't the most immediate recipients, it's intended as words of judgment to the unjust rich of the world, there's great benefit to the church as they hear these. Now, I just want to mention uh, two things that I think uh, James has purpose for in speaking these words of judgment uh, just right off. The first thing I think that this does for his listeners in the church, these Jewish Christians scattered abroad, um, is that they become aware that God actually cares about injustice in the world. Um, in this, at this point in time, many of the Christians, Jewish believers, were on the recipient end of a lot of injustice. There was great disparity and tension among the rich and the poor in the world, and they had been on the receiving end of that injustice. And so for them to hear these words reminded them or, or, or spoke truth to them that actually God cares about injustice in the world. That he's not blind to the things going on in the world. That he cares about what's happening to them. And so that's of great value for them to have some assurance that God's not blind and he cares about injustice against them. The second thing this does is the moment uh, that this kind of language is turned to people outside of the church, it begins to put those inside the church at ease. Gosh, he's not talking to us. He's talking to them. But at the same time, that kind of lowers some Uh, boundaries, like uh, some tension, so enough to where they might actually be able to learn something too, Uh, that they can receive something from Pastor James, even though he's condemning or calling for judgment against the unjust rich of the world. And so I think those two purposes is, is why he has written these words that the church is hearing. And so in this text that we just read, it's clear that, that James, speaking judgment, and is identifying particular indictments against the unjust rich of the world. And so quickly, I just want to walk through what are those indictments, what is uh, James saying about judgment, and why they're on the receiving end of God's judgment. Um, and so the first thing um, I think becomes abundantly clear Um, especially these first few verses. And again, these are hard verses. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Verse two, your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. And then he says this, this corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. So what's the first indictment that we see here? The first indictment is that these unjust rich of the world have built their life around the accumulation of personal wealth. 
The whole bent and purpose for their existence and their work has been to get more stuff, to fill more towers with material wealth, gold and silver and clothes. They have sunk their roots of their life deep into material possessions. They've hoarded those things. In fact, he would say, in a roundabout way, you've experienced unjust rich of the world, that that's never enough. You keep on wanting more and more and more because your security, your way of life, uh, your contentment is all dependent upon how much you have. And for that reason, there's an indictment against you that you have set your life and your purpose on lifeless things. In fact, James uses that phrase, those very things that you've hoarded for yourself will testify against you. Now, what has happened to these things? Pastor James says they've become corroded. They're they're rotted away. These things that you have built your life around are falling apart with no purpose other than to have more stuff. And he says, those corroded material possessions are testifying against you. And you can imagine that um, the unjust rich of the world are brought before the Lord and their, the evidence against them or the, the witness, number one, is their stuff. And their stuff is rotted and corroded. And James says, their testimony against you condemns you. Why? James is saying because what they testify is that you have set your heart and you have set your life and you have sunk the roots of your life into worthless, lifeless, fruitless things. And that testimony condemns you. The second indictment that we see in these verses, uh, we find in verse four. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay, the cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. And so James would bring an indictment against them that they have accumulated their wealth at the expense of the needs and interests of others, primarily their own employees, their own field workers. Now, we live in a big world, right? And we have business ventures and companies all over the world, but we know this to be true in various degrees and realities in in our own world that we live in, right? Uh, We know that there are companies that uh, take advantage of their own employees. Um, And by God's grace, mostly in the Western world, we have governments who are put in place to suppress that kind of uh, evil, and we have kind of guardrails and regulations that help that, but it's never quite enough to satiate the greed of the human heart. But the place that I've seen it most clearly, I've used this analogy before, but in Kenya, all the tea that you drink, green tea, white tea, black tea, comes from East Africa, and it's, uh, that is supplied by huge tea farms. Some are owned by major world conglomerates like Unilever that owns Lipton, and some, is, some are owned by small local businessmen, landowners in Kenya. And they're the embodiment of these very verses in verse 4, cheating their own employees of pay. And so what they do, what these Kenyan landowners have done, not all of them, of course, but some of them have done, is they've recruited families that have great need to live right in the heart of the tea fields to be their harvesters. 
and they pay them just enough to squeak by. They pay them just enough so that they can send maybe one child to school because they have to buy books and uniforms. And on top of that, as I mentioned here before, then the landowner says, well, if you want your own plot of land to grow your own veggies to provide food for your own table, you're going to have to lease that from me too out of the minuscule pay that I give you. And it's such a hardship for these employees that oftentimes um, the, the women in these fields have to give themselves to others in order to reap enough income to meet their basic needs. And they do that because they, they want to keep those families dependent and right there so that they can ingratiate themselves by amassing more and more and more personal wealth. And James says, be careful. Judgment is coming for the unjust landowners of the world. You've accumulated your wealth at the expense and needs and the interests of others. The third indictment is you have used all your wealth on your own pleasure. We see that in verse five and six. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. My goodness. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not or cannot resist you. And so James paints this picture of the unjust rich of the world that have amassed and given their life to amassing personal wealth, and what have they used that wealth for? That some of it is now rotting and corroded. They have used that wealth to meet every desire that they have for themselves. Uh, they have invested in a life of luxury, while those who cannot do anything about their own condition die. And James says, listen, you're just fattening yourself up for the slaughter. Judgment and condemnation is coming because you have lived your life for yourself. Self-aggrandizing and thinking for a moment, gosh, I really deserve all this stuff. Look at all that I've accomplished. James says, be careful. Don't, don't live that way. I can think of two examples in the scripture where we see it's happening and God responding right then. Um, you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar, right? He stands upon his rooftop of his palace and he looks over all that he has done, all that he has done and all that he has amassed for himself, power and flu- influence and, and wealth. And he says, oh my, look at what I have done. In that moment, God brought judgment against him and he lost his mind and became a beast of the field eating grass on the hillside for the next seven years. God says, listen, take that seriously. Uh, The next time, or the next example that we see of this in scripture, you remember Herod, not Herod the Great, but Herod the Antipas, um, Herod the Great's son. This is you know, right when the church is beginning to kind of explode on the scene after Jesus' death and resurrection, Herod comes into his throne room with the most royal of robes, beautiful, decked out in all of his splendor, and there's people, representatives from Tyre and Sidon, who are dependent upon his decision to send goods their way because they need goods from that region in order to survive. Right, And so you have these, these representatives from Tyre and Sutton, and they are saying this. They're saying, 
not the voice of a man, the voice of God. This must be the voice of God. Herod is not just a man. And the word of God tells us in Acts chapter 12, in that moment, the angel of the Lord struck him dead and his body was eaten by worms. But here's why. Because he did not give glory to God. There was that self and aggrandizement where he said, look at myself and the stuff that I've accumulated and what I deserve. This is about me. This is about me. This is really a fulfillment of that prophetic word of Paul. We don't often consider Paul a prophet, but in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, uh, Paul says a lot about uh, how to think about money and wealth. Let me just read these verses. If I can get to them. Here we go. Verse 9, it says, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction, and not just personal destruction, but the destruction of others. Verse 10, he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. And so, I mean, Paul is... And a prophetic voice says, goodness, if you set your heart on worthless and lifeless things, the end is destruction and judgment and condemnation and and harm done to not only yourself, but people all around you. People all around you. And we read these words, we read these words, and we realize it's... It's not that God is against personal wealth. That's not what God is against. God's not against money. We all need money to live and work and bless others in this world. God's not against material possessions. But what James makes clear is that God brings judgment and condemns that soul-sucking, purposeless greed that produces destructive and lifeless fruit. James says to the church, God is not blind to what's happening in the world. God cares about that kind of greed that has led to that kind of injustice. God has not turned his back. But also the church is being taught and reminded that there is a very different way of life that God has called us to live as followers of Jesus. A very different trajectory. In fact, Jesus calls us to sink our roots into an entirely different treasure altogether. He calls us to a better life. In Matthew chapter 6, Uh, Verses uh, 19 and 20. Small pages. Y'all know these verses. It says, uh, Jesus says, these are Jesus' words. You know how I've mentioned that um, so much of James 
in some ways is kind of a parallel or echo to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, here it is again. Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and still store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and still. Verse 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. And so Jesus is inviting those who are listening in that great, great sermon. He's saying, listen, I'm inviting you to a different kind of life. Uh, In fact, not just a different kind of life, but a far better life than the material wealth can provide you with greater, greater fruit. That's the invitation of Jesus. Jesus would say, I I want you to set your sights on eternal treasure. In fact, John 10.10, remember John 10.10, Jesus' words are again, he says, listen, you know, the thief only comes to rob, steal, and destroy, but listen, I have come to give you words of life that will lead you into abundance, to a better way, a better life. And so Jesus has beckoned the people, he beckons his disciples, and he beckons us, he says, would you follow along with me, will you Go down a different path. Will you have a different set of values than the values of the world? Will you go about life in a a different way? Will you sink your roots into a different kind of treasure? A treasure that will bring real life and real fruit, eternal fruit. And this is where we get back to John 15, verses 5 through 8 and verses 16 through 17. In John 15, um, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I'm not gonna be with you anymore, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit. But he also begins to forecast for them the kind of trajectory that he's giving them. And so in verses five through eight, he says, listen, I have commanded you, I have set you aside to bear fruit. He gives them their purpose and goal in life. He says, I'm gonna be calling you and going to be with you so that you can accumulate eternal, lasting fruit in your life and the lives of other people. And then we get to verses 15 through 17, where Jesus says, in another way, he's gonna say the same thing, listen, uh, I, I don't call you slaves or servants anymore. I call you friends because you know what my life is all about. I have shared with you what the Father has given me, the, the purpose that I have come to you. I, I've shared, I haven't withhold, withheld that from you. I have disclosed everything to you, and that makes us friends. And in that dynamic friendship, Jesus says, I have commanded you to bear much fruit. Now go and love each other. Jesus has set a clear path, a new way of life, a new treasure for his disciples so that they can bear fruit. What does it say in verse five of John 15? Listen, if if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. You You can't live that kind of life if you've given yourself to amassing personal wealth, which by the way, that kind of level of greed can be true of a rich person or a poor person. Greed is an equal opportunity thing. 
It, it, it's not just for those who have wealth. Greed exists also in the person who has none because they have sunk their roots into the idea that if I have that kind of treasure, then I can have real life. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't know real life unless you sink your roots into a more superior treasure, me. And not only that, but he says, again, I'm commanding you to a different way of life and a different end goal, a different trajectory so that you can bear much fruit. And the only way that happens is in our friendship with one another as I nurture you all along the way. And ultimately, he says, I'm going to do that through the giving of the Spirit of God, right? I've called you to bear fruit. I've called you to a brand new way of life. I've called you to love a superior treasure, Y'all know the story that Jesus told the guy that was walking through the field one day and his, he stubbed his toe on this, this treasure box just barely sticking up out of the field. He unearthed it, opened it up, and he found treasure he'd never seen before. And Jesus says that man went home and sold everything he had so he could buy the field and have the greater treasure. And that's what Jesus is calling the disciples to. That's what James is trying to remind these churches of. And that's who Jesus is trying to remind us of, is sink your roots into a more superior treasure, me. And in that, you will fulfill the greatest trajectory that any life can have to bear eternal, lasting fruit, not only in your own life, but in the lives of other people. A new way of life. And what does that new way of life look like according to Jesus? Gosh, he says, you do, things, you do things differently when you set that as your trajectory, when you count me as a superior treasure. Weird things happen. The world kind of flips on, it, on its head. Matthew chapter 20, verses 23, 26 through 28, he tells his disciples and those who are listening, listen, do you really want to be great? Do you want to be first in life? Do you want to be powerful? Do you want to be important? You don't amass wealth for yourself. You become a servant to all. Right? See how that changes? The person, that unjust, rich, wealthy person who has amassed personal wealth for their own personal luxury at the expense of others. Jesus says, if you want to be great and wealthy in the kingdom of God, you know what it looks like? It means that you receive the blessing that God has given you and you invest it in the lives of people. You become a servant. Jesus says, that's, that's, what's, that's what's great. And then he modeled it for us the whole time. He walked the earth, right? He gave himself up. There's no one greater than the Son of God. Jesus, do what I do. Live the way I live. A new way of life. And he says, even, even in pursuing greatness, you know, serve all. But that's not it. He says, also, listen, I want you to enjoy the things that God gives you. The mistake that the Herods of the world make and the Nebuchadnezzars of the world make, that if they think that their personal wealth stops right there, that it makes much of them. But that's not how God talks about good gifts and blessings. There's nothing wrong with enjoying good things that our world provides. The way we respond to it matters, though. Um, in um, 1 Timothy 6... It says this, uh, verse 17, the second part of verse 17, their trust should be in God rather than wealth. Their trust should be in God which rich, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. There's nothing wrong with enjoying all the good gifts that come from the Father. 
That includes a nice vacation or a nice car. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when it stops right there. We begin to glorify ourselves rather than stop in our enjoyment and say, gosh, I'm thankful for all the things that God blesses me with. And not me only, but he has resourced me so that I can invest in the lives of other people around me. Pursue thankfulness, even in the good things that we have the privilege to enjoy because God gives them to us. Paul sums it up. I'm just going to read these verses again. I just turned there, so let me go back. Uh, Paul, again, says a lot about really trying to steer us away from looking to wealth as our security and greatest treasure. But he says these in verse 17. I'll begin here again, but he wraps it up very well. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable because it rots away. And if it's left in storehouses, it does no good. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Saying the same thing, just in a different kind of way. Steering the affections of our heart in a different direction. How in the world does this fit into discipleship? This whole month, we're going to be challenging ourselves into a deeper life of discipleship. Listen, discipleship begins when we fully embrace Jesus' calling and trajectory for our life. That's where it begins. I believe who Jesus is and what he's done, that he's restoring my life through forgiveness of sin. He's restoring my relationship with the one who's created me. And he has set a different path, a new way of thinking and living and and fruit bearing. Discipleship or transformation, the life of the believer begins when we say yes to that trajectory. Yes, that's where I want to head. Yes, that's the kind of fruit that I want to produce in my life. Eternal, life-giving, lasting fruit, that's where it begins. And that process of discipleship, we give ourselves uh, over time to learn more and more how to shirk the values and ways of the world and to sink our roots into a far superior treasure, Jesus, to bear lasting, living, life-enriching, life-giving fruit. And so the question that I have for you and for myself, will you double down in investing on a journey like that? Will you receive, I think God is the greatest venture capitalist in the universe. God gives like no one else can give to reap a reward of great dividend in our lives and as we reinvest in the lives of other people. Will you double down in investing in a journey like that? Will you take on in increasing ways steps towards real, real life, tangible discipleship in your life so that you can fulfill God's purpose and trajectory and plan for 
you. I sure hope so. I need you to do me a huge favor right now. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I need you to get out your phones. No, I'm not going to tell you that phones are the most evil thing on the planet. I'm not going to do that. I want you to go. There's going to be a QR code on the screen. And I'm going to ask you to answer to or respond to two statements that you're going to go to on your phone, and then I'll share with you the results next week. And basically, um, I have two statements that I want you to respond to on a scale from one to five, five being, yes, I strongly agree. Actually, it might even have numbers. It just has statements. I think it just has statements. So the first statement, when you get to that location, are you, and even students, you do this, everyone do this. The first statement I want you to respond to is, I'm living for God's kingdom right now in my life. Uh, I am sinking my roots deep into Jesus's trajectory for my life. I'm living the life of the disciple. So disagree, kind of agree, strongly agree. Indicate that. You don't have to put your name. This is all anonymous. And the second one is this. I desire to live more of my life for God's kingdom. Gosh, I ache. I crave for the things of Jesus. I crave more and more to set my roots deep into the greatest, more superior treasure on the planet, Jesus. And I want to bear fruit. I want to bear his fruit. So, again, uh, don't agree, agree, strongly agree. We'll be doing that a little bit throughout our time this month. I'll give you the results of that. I think it'll give us an idea of kind of where we are in this process of discipleship in our own life. We're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond to God. And you, you made me to just confess to yourself or someone else, gosh, I've been wasting my life sinking my roots into an inferior treasure. Ten of that, turn to Jesus. You may need to be turning to Jesus for the very first time, knowing that he is the greatest treasure. In him you find forgiveness of sin and brand new life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your grace towards us. Lord, I pray that you lead us to bear greater fruit in our life. Help us to sink our teeth deep into your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.